Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. Thank you for coming this morning. As always said, it'll just be me, myself, and I, and I'd rather have you with me. I'd probably still preach, but nobody would listen. Have you ever broken anything that's valuable? I know Pastor Sam spoke about your favorite toy. What if your cell phone broke? The other day, I was putting on my watch. I, now I live, oh, Siri wants, what can I help you with? Siri wants to know what I, I'm not talking to you right now. She says, you're very rude. Now, I was trying to put on my watch, which I used to, I don't want to wear like an Apple watch. Why do I want that? And then I was like, my accountability partner, I can tell how many active calories I'm burning. You know, I can look at my runs and go how far I am, you know, and all that stuff. And the other day I was putting it on and I missed the hole and it fell and like crashed and the whole face of it was broken. And I was like, what do I do now? (laughs) It's like when you drop your cell phone in water. You ever done that? And get it out real quick. Oh, God, please make it work. And then it doesn't work. And what do you put it in? Rice. And then you're praying to the God of the cell phone. God of the cell phone, please restore my phone. Well, we're looking at Moses. Last week, we talked about how he came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments from God and looked at the people of Israel worshiping a cow. And he had a cow and he got really angry and he threw down the Ten Commandments and they broke. So imagine being Moses, like he literally broke the Ten Commandments. But remember, he's a representative of Israel. So it was Israel that broke the Ten Commandments. So God says, he's talking to Moses on the mountain. He goes, by the way, Moses I know you're having a mountaintop experience. You love mountaintop experiences, by the way. Like You're like on top of the mountain. We go to a place called Mount Hermon, which is up north in the Santa Cruz Mountains and the Redwoods. And you go up there, and it's just like you feel like you're in a different world because you're just being with God and with other people who love God. It's a mountaintop experience. So Moses is having this mountaintop experience. God looks at Moses and says, hey, by the way, Moses, your people? He's like, what do you mean your people? You're the one that gave me them. He's like, they're the worst congregants in the world. I mean, all they do is complain about everything. But God says, your people are like having a cultic worship party down in the valley. So you need to go down there. He goes down and he sees it. He gets really angry, breaks the commandments, throws them on the ground. He burns up everything and gets rid of all the cultic things. So where we are in the story then is God said, literally said to Moses, just let me kill them all, and I'll start over with you. But Moses says, even though the Israelites are complaining, stiff-necked, stubborn people, I know you love them, God, because you called them. I love them because I'm their shepherd, and I ask that you don't kill them all. So a plague breaks out, and a few thousand of them die. But what we see here is God's compassionate love towards people who deserved destruction. Can you imagine 40 days, Moses on the mountaintop, it hadn't been that long, and they're already breaking every commandment. 
And God's like, why do I put up with these people? But God does more than put up with us. He loves us and he restores us even though we're broken. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The Lord in Exodus 34, 1, we're going to be in that passage. It says, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, Moses. <laughs> so we're going to talk about how God restores broken people and broken relationships. So the first thing we're talking about is the God who restores people. God restores us. We are broken. We have hurts, habits, hang-ups, things that we carry around in our suitcase for our life. And God says, give those to me so that I can fix what's broken inside. Because here's the thing, until we can understand that we're broken inside, everything outside is never going to look correct until we're ready to be restored on the inside by God's grace. So Moses was literally referred to by God as his friend. In Exodus 33, 11, it says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So imagine talking with the God who created the universe, created all things, having a friendly conversation with you, like your friends. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, guess what? That's part of the restoration process that God has done through Jesus Christ, that when someone receives Jesus Christ, that person is restored. The Bible says you're a new creation. You're new from the inside. And then God starts to get us used to that new life. It has to start on the inside. But the cool thing is, is that when we receive Christ, we get direct access to God like he's our friend. In Hebrews 4, 15, 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest, he's speaking of Jesus, the high priest, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father currently. He's our high priest. He prays for us. Do you know that? Is that amazing? The Bible says that Jesus prays for you. That's powerful prayer. Sometimes I don't know what to pray, and I'm like, Jesus, just please pray for me. I don't even know what to pray. We don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses because Jesus went through all things on earth, and experienced incredible pain and betrayal. But we have a high priest who has been tempted in all things like we are, but without sin. Therefore, because of him, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where God is seated so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I need to remember that constantly every minute, every day. Because I have access to God and the throne of grace to receive mercy. Moses got to see God like no one ever had. He descended the mountain and he lays into the people. Let's look at that real quick before we go to Exodus 34. Let's look at Exodus 32, starting in verse 30, just to give us the backstory. It says, On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God for gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. So basically, Moses is saying, I'll take the penalty. That's pretty amazing. He's been their leader for not a very long time. And they've already complained to him. 
Where's the water? Where's the food? You know, Moses, we don't like it in the wilderness. We want to go back to Egypt. There's constant complaining. And Moses is saying, I love your people so much, God, that I'll take the penalty. Blot me out of your book of life. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will take care of that. Okay, Moses, so I know what I'm doing, but you go and do your job. Lead the people where I told you. My angels will go before you, and I will punish them for their sin, but that's not your deal. Your deal is keep your eyes on me, do your work for the Lord. And that's what's important that we understand. Now we're going to jump to Exodus 33, starting verse 12. We're going to pick up there. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring these people, but you yourself have not let me know who you're going to send with me. So in other words, he's doubting whether or not God is going to be with him because God has already said, I'm really ticked at those people. But he said, moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, Yahweh, which is the name of God, which means I am. Let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may found favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, my presence shall be with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Then he said, and this is an incredible statement. Moses says, Yahweh, if your presence does not go with us, I don't want to go. I want to say that. God, if your presence is not going there, I don't want to go there. For how then can it be known that I found favor in your sight? Is it not by your going with us, Lord? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing which you have spoken, because you have found favor in my sight, Moses, and I have known you by name. Moses said, I pray that you would show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you because the goodness of the Lord is the same as the glory of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on them. But God says this, Moses, you can't see my face for no one can see me and live. That's how holy God is. And then God said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand over there in the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that you will be put in the cleft or the cave of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by because Moses, if not, you'll die from my holy presence. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So let's talk real quick about what that means. What does it mean? Does it mean that God has a human body? Well, Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit. So he's speaking of the Father, the the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what is Moses seeing there? Well, when Jesus came, who's the Son, he took on a human body, right? And it says in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself said, read this with me, John 14.9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you know and if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So God later explains what Moses saw in Numbers. He's like, what did he see? He's talking about my face and my back. And it says in Numbers that with Moses, 
God is speaking. I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord, which can mean likeness or a depiction. So somehow God took on a form because he's spirit. He took on a form. But even in that form, Moses couldn't look at him because he was so holy, other he'd die. And plus, Moses really didn't see anything, right? Because God put him in the cave of the rock and covered his eyes. But here's the incredible thing. That same holy God would allow us to talk to him and to know him and to speak to him like a friend. That is cool. That's part of the restoration process that God is doing and has done in our life as believers. And after God reveals himself to Moses in such an intimate way, he now restores what Moses broke. So in Exodus 34.1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I, Yahweh, will write on them, because it's God who wrote and engraved the Ten Commandments. I will write on them the words were on the first tablets which you broke. Now, this whole renewal thing is an act of God's grace. Did God have to go through all the trouble? I mean, does God have to do anything besides just be God? No. But God is working in the life of his people. It was Israel who would constantly rebel against God and Moses, and yet God kept putting up with these people. See, Moses was called by God. So it didn't matter what Israel thought about Moses. If you're called by God, it doesn't matter what people think about you. And by the way, we're all called by him into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. We should find our self-worth and our identity in Christ. Because what God anoints as holy to be his representative, all Christians who have the Holy Spirit, who have believed in Jesus Christ, are his representatives. And what God anoints, God will use according to his plan and his purpose, and no one can stop it. If you're called, isn't God going to do it? All we got to do is suit up and show up, right? That's what's awesome to me. If we think about an exodus thus far, we've talked about a lot of different things. We started off with the God who remembers, how he remembered the covenant to Abraham. Then we talked about the God who reveals himself to the people through Moses as Yahweh. Then we talked about the God who rescues his people from Egypt. Then we talked about the God who responds to his people in the desert with provision, even though they were complaining about what God was giving them. And then we talked about God who rules through giving the Ten Commandments and the Torah, the law, the instruction. And then we talked about the God who remains with his people through the tabernacle and the priests. And then we talked about the God who reprimands his people with divine judgment. And then God who restores his people by renewing his covenant. And this is the historical progression of Israel. And it's also the story of our renewal in Christ. Now, did this happen because Moses was some special guy? I mean, no, he was a murderer who had an anger problem. And God still used him. Did this happen to Israel because they were like these great, wonderful people that read their Bible every day and like prayed all the time and thought about other people above themselves constantly? No, the exact opposite. But God ordained it. It's his story. History belongs to him. 
But also there's an important aspect about this story that we have to understand. A lot of the reason for God working this way is for us to learn by Israel's example what to do and what not to do. In fact, 1 Corinthians says, Now these things to Israel happened as examples for us so that we'd not crave evil things as they crave. Paul says, Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Isn't it always better to learn from other people's mistakes? But yeah, we don't. We're like, I got to try that out myself. You know, I got to eat that fruit from that tree because I want to see what happens, you know. Now, God, through Moses, teaches us about his love and mercy. In Exodus 34, it says, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, And Yahweh, God, he's a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Slow to anger. Think about that. Peter wrote in his letter that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient, waiting for everyone to come home to Christ. Here's the thing. You ever hear people mocking God and talking bad about God? What if every single time someone said that they were just turned into smoke like that? A lot of us, if we were God, would do that, right? You're done. Wrong answer. But think about the fact that God hasn't done that is pretty amazing and pretty patient. God is in the business of restoring broken things, including people. And then God is a God who restores relationships. Because it's not just about me. It's about the people that God has put in my life. Because here's the thing. Sin is serious. In fact, it was so serious that God sent his son, who had no sin, to die on the cross and take on our sin so that we don't have to die for our sin. That's pretty serious. And the Bible says that when one part of the body suffers, the other part, think about your body. So your body is made up of a bunch of different components. And if they're not working together correctly, you have disease, right? You have disunity. And the body of Christ is similar. So that's why when it says when one part suffers, we all suffer because we feel that. When all one rejoices, we all rejoice. But here's the other part of it. The Bible says that in the context of relationships within the church, and specifically Israel, when one person sinned, the whole nation suffered. Read about Achan. I always want to do a sermon called My Achan Back, because he took for himself the treasure that was supposed to be for God. And then Israel is wondering, why are we losing the battles all of a sudden? And God's like, wake up. There's sin in the camp. And they found Achan and his family buried the stuff under their tent. And Joshua goes, that's unacceptable. And God did what he needed to do, and he took care of that. Read the story. But the point there was that all Israel suffered because of the sin of one family. We see it in the New Testament, where sin almost destroyed an entire church in Corinth because of the sin of some specific people. The point is this, sin is serious. And if it not for God's grace, we'd be dead in the desert like Israel. In Exodus 34, 9, Moses says, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate 
and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. So Moses stands in the gap for the people. Have you ever done that? Have you ever stood in the gap for someone who needs Jesus? Said, Lord, please pardon their sin. Please bring them into that light so they can see their need for you. And so now God restores Israel with the renewal of his covenant in Exodus 34. It says, he said, behold, I'm making a covenant. It's the renewal. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth. And all the people among you, they will see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you, Israel. Observe what I command you this day. Now did Israel keep their end of the bargain by doing all that God commanded? No. Did God give up on Israel? No. The New Testament tells us in Romans 11, and Paul is writing, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel? No. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribes. Paul is saying, God didn't forget his people because I'm Jewish, but I got saved. I found my Messiah, or he revealed himself to me. It's Jesus Christ the Messiah. And that's what God's trying to do with all of Israel. In Romans eleven eleven, it says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Israel? No. Rather, now check this out, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, then you would be a Gentile. You would be a non-Jew. Okay. So Jesus says something incredible. He said, salvation comes from the Jews. What he means by that is the whole backstory starting in Genesis with the fall and the catastrophe in the garden where Adam and Eve tried to take everything in their own hands. The whole story has been trying to restore that relationship that God wanted with all mankind and he had to do it through his son, Jesus Christ. All that backstory comes from the story of Israel. That's why you can't disconnect from the Old Testament. The New Testament's a continuing story and we're part of that. In fact, the Bible says that we have been grafted into that tree. But look what happens. Through their trespass, salvation comes to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, God saved the church partly so that Israel would come to a point in their life, corporately and personally, that they would say, hey, I thought we were the chosen ones. Anyone who believes in Christ is the chosen one. The Bible says Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter what our background is, who we are, okay? So God gives second chances. I wanted to read from Romans real quick. Romans 11, starting verse 25, Paul writes, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. The partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer or the rescuer will come from Zion. Paul's writing about the deliverer or the rescuer. And Israel knows of a deliverer and a rescuer, right? God rescued them from Egypt. Who is that person? Jesus. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. To be reconciled means to exchange hostility for a friendly relationship, just like Moses had. How does one become friends with God? Through Christ. 
And that doesn't end there, though. God says, not only that, that's like the awesome thing, but I didn't do it just for you. He says, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which in other words, we're supposed to be reconcilers to people who are broken and lost. That's in relationship. So we're going to end with the finding yourself in the story, and we have an incredible testimony in a little while. But finding yourself in the story, God restores broken things. He restores broken commandments. Broken commandments. Raise your hand if you've ever broken one of the commandments. Okay, raise your hand if you've broken multiple commandments. Galatians 3.24 says, there, and this is important, the law was given to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. What does a tutor do? Teaches, instructs. So the law was to instruct us not to try and keep the law, but to place our faith in the one, the only one who could keep the law, Jesus Christ, so that we may just be justified by faith. So is there anyone in the history of the world who's kept all the commandments? One, Jesus. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus is saying, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. We are restored and completed in Christ. And like Israel and Moses, we broke the commandments because of God's grace. We can be restored through faith in Christ who kept all the commandments. Next, God restores broken covenant. What's a covenant? It's a promise. Have you ever broken a promise? Does that affect your relationship with the people you broke it with? It affects you, right? That's part of what being broken is. So that's why it's so important to let God fix us and restore us from the inside out. And how do we do this? Through the new covenant. Do you know there's a new covenant? Jesus said in Luke 22, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, the Mosaic covenant was based on the law and sin was forgiven by the sacrifice of the animals because blood has to be the payment for sin. But because of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes it away the sin of the world, he actually takes it away. It's not just covered. It's taken away forever. And I don't know why people would choose to live under the Mosaic law and not live under the new covenant, which is way better. I always hear people say, if only I could do better. If only I could keep the commandments. If only... I could please God by my performance. If only Jesus, God's son, would die on the cross in my place so that I could receive God's grace and forgiveness in my life. That's not an if only. That's a it happened. And that's how we're restored. And Jesus says, don't live under the heavy weight of that. In fact, Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. Because it's about a relationship. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Rest comes from when you stop trying to earn God's love and receive his love through Christ. And then last, broken communion. We have a broken relationship with God by sin. 
Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, that doesn't mean that we still don't sin as believers, but our sin has been forgiven. Now, that's at a forensic legal level. That's why we're justified by faith, not by works. Legally, because God is judge, legally, we have been forgiven when we receive Jesus Christ. But do we sin still? Yes, all the time. And that's why this verse is incredibly important to having that communion with God unhindered. 1 John 1, 9, read it with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, that's the premise, we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins is the promise. And that's written to believers. Because there's no reason why any believer should be walking around with guilt and shame. No reason. Tell God about it. He, he already knows. He's just waiting for you to fess up. We're talking about the unveiled face that Ray read in the scripture. That's an incredible thing because Moses was with God. And his face would shine with the presence of God. And guess what? We as believers... We have received Jesus Christ, and he wants to shine through our life. Sometimes that's through pain. Sometimes that's through suffering. You ever seen persecuted Christians, and you go, how, is that? how do they do that? Well, by the grace of God. But doesn't it shine the presence of Jesus Christ to the world that someone would die for Christ? Well, Jesus knows that pain. And um, there's a person who's going to share a testimony, Dee Dee Riley, in a minute. It's a story of incredible pain, but it's also a story of hope because Jesus understands. Jesus knows. Let's welcome Dee Dee. Good morning. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for this opportunity to share your story. I thank you that even in the midst of pain, that your glory show. And Lord, I pray that as I speak, it's not my words, but your words. I pray that you would touch the hearts of anyone here that needs hope. And I pray that, uh, that anyone that does not know you, Lord, would possibly find you, or not possibly, but would find you in the midst of it. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So I was 21. I was going into my senior year of college. My boyfriend at the time and I decided we'd move in together. He was going to stay in the guest bedroom, and that was the plan until it changed. And it did not last long for it to change. He was wonderful. He treated me like a queen. I thought I was living on top of the world. I was two semesters from graduating, and then I was going to head into my next step of becoming a pediatric neurosurgeon. In January of 2002, I started feeling kind of funny, so I took a pregnancy test, and a plus showed up. And it came with two pack, two tests. So I took the second one, and again, it was positive. And thinking the only possible reason that this is positive is that the test was flawed. I went to the market and bought a whole other set of boxes. And by the time I was done, I had 12 pregnancy tests lined up on the, on the bathroom counter, all of them positive. I stood there in shock and terrified, and I had no idea what I was supposed to do. 
I called my aunt. And I said, I'm pregnant. And she, congratulations. And I'm like, what? I'm 21 and I'm pregnant. What do you mean congratulations? I was so confused. And she said, no, no, no. A baby is the greatest blessing. You'll see. And I don't remember what else she said that day, but I remember feeling capable, loved, safe, and that I could actually be a parent. I hung up the phone, and I remember sitting there, and I was not sure what I was going to do, so I called Nana. And I told her, and again, she, with her very calm and soft voice, if you guys know Nana, you know that she's soft and gentle, and she said, congratulations, and this is going to be a blessing. So then we told our families, and after telling our families, I spent eight months being pressured into having an abortion. I was told I was not capable. I was told I would ruin my life. I was told I could not be a mom because I was only going to be 22 when I had the baby. Thankfully, at that time, my boyfriend and I had never considered it an option, and so we pressed forward. One week before I turned 22, on October 8, 2002, at 12.43 p.m., Kayla Nicole was born into this world. Now, if you've ever seen an infant, newly born, they look like aliens, right? I mean, their, fa- their heads are deformed, I mean, just shaped funny. Their skin is just a weird color. It has a, just this weird powdery stuff on it. And their eyes cannot fully open, so they make these squinting expressions, and you're like, what's happening? But Kayla was different. Kayla was perfect. Her head was perfectly shaped. She had a perfect color to her, and nurses and doctors would come in and look in her in awe. From the beginning, she was kind of a little bit of an overachiever. (laughs) Two weeks later, Kayla's heart stopped, and she stopped breathing. This was the first time I ever remember really pleading with God. And by his mercy, he breathed life back into her. Thirteen times, she stopped breathing, and her heart stopped Two strokes and one seizure all happened before she turned the age of two. In between that time, I married her biological father. I tried really hard to right a wrong. By this time, he had become emotionally and verbally abusive. He would yell at me and tell me I was a terrible person. He would walk out of doctor's appointments to go play golf with his buddies and to drink. He would tell me that I was stupid and I was incapable of making medical decisions, yet he never partaked in anything. He told anyone that would listen that I was making it up, that Kayla was not sick, and somehow I was managed and able to alter the tests that the doctors were running. Lifelong friends walked out of my life. By the time Kayla was three, I had left him. And my aunt reminded me over and over again that people are going to talk and talk about you until there's something else and someone else to talk about. And she was right. There I was, 25, a single mom, fighting an incredibly broken medical system, trying to help save my daughter's life every single day. And the majority of my people had walked away. I had a core group of people that God blessed me with that encouraged me and continued to tell me to keep going. They believed in me, even with the people around them would tell them I was lying, that I was making it up, and Kayla was not really sick. By this point, Jesus became my rock. I was raising Kayla to love him as well. We went to church, we did Bible studies, we were on fire for God. 
I was saved at Saddleback Church. I was baptized there, and Kayla was as well. Saddleback became our refuge away from the chaos, away from the lies of the world. I swore off marriage. I surrounded myself with people who did the same. I dated for fun. Nothing was ever serious. My focus was on Kayla. I battled every single day for her life. I did not have time to do anything else, and the idea of getting into another marriage or with another relationship was terrifying. Then my husband came into the picture. He walked walked into our house as my brother's friend on Thanksgiving dinner, and Kayla noticed him first, and her favorite line was, I loved him first, and she was right. Spence and I dated for a year and never told Kayla what was happening. During that time, he would come around, and Kayla would pray every night that Spence would become my husband and that he would become her daddy. Spence was different. He was honest. He was kind. He was loving. He was a protector, but he was gentle. He was strong physically, but he had a very soft heart. If you did not know him, you probably would have thought he was Christian, but he was not. When he asked me to marry him, Part of our agreement was that we were going to raise our children in a Christian home. We would go to church on Sundays. We would pray every night and before meals. And that the sacrifice of a Christian's education was something that we would do. On April 2010, we got married. From that day forward, Spence held to his promises. He prayed every night with us. He went to church. Sometimes he stood and sang, but other times he just stood there. He never said a word to Kayla about not believing in Jesus. We went to church on Sundays as a believing family. At the end of every hi, sweetheart. At the end of every sermon, when the pastors would ask any if anyone would like to come into Christ, Jesus into his heart, I would squeeze his hand so hard, just reminding him, maybe today's the day. Today's that time. When he'd ask what I wanted for birthdays or anniversaries or Christmas, it was always something on the lines of, can you please just believe in Jesus so we can spend eternity together? I'm not sure if that was a selling point or not, but it never happened. In June 2011, we had our middle daughter, Cadence, and she was perfect. February 2013, we had our youngest daughter, Kalia. And all the while, Kayla would continue to struggle with her health. She had more rare diseases than anyone knew how to manage. She and I traveled the United States trying to find doctors to be able to help. I put together a team of doctors willing and able, but yet, at the same time, we had outrageous amounts of medical bills because we did. See, having a rare disease is not like having a strep infection or a known disease. It means that there's no treatment path. It means that everything that's done is done off-label. And it means that even if you have medical insurance, you still have an outrageous amount of -of out-of-pocket expenses because no one thinks what you're doing is necessary. So our family was spending about $52,000 out-of-pocket every year trying to keep Kayla alive. In 2014, we ran out of money. We did not have enough money to cover our food expenses, to cover our basic needs to survive. Everything we had was going towards keeping Kayla alive. God opened the doors for work for my husband. The only thing was it was not in Orange County. We had to move to the Bay Area. 
brokenhearted, leaving family, friends, Kayla's friends, our school family, our people, our doctors. We packed up and moved. I found Jesus even more than I had before because I left everything. I had a medically fragile child, and I had no one to depend on other than him. We also had to find a church. For a year, we searched. We were dry spiritually, and it poured into every aspect of our lives. My husband was not a believer, though the salvation of our three girls rested on my shoulders. Finally, we found this church, and it's been our home since. Kayla had a great first year in the Bay Area. She met new friends. She loved her new school. She missed her friends down here tremendously and family, but she was happy. Kayla and I traveled at least every other week down to Southern California. She, we had to keep the continuity of her care the same as what it was here. She had treatments and specialists that we had to come down to. The second year in Northern California, Kayla's health declined, and she was forced to be on the home hospital program. She was too sick and too weak to go to school. On top of fighting a broken medical system, insurance, and traveling every other week to California, I was trying to be a mom to two very little girls and a good wife. We also continued to have appointments all over the United States that then took me away from my family. On March 18, 2017, Kayla stopped being able to eat. She was in pain unlike any other time in her life. She was admitted for six weeks to the hospital, while some doctors did everything they could to make her comfortable. Others did their best to make her admission hell on earth. More than a handful of doctors told her her pain and her problems were all in her head, or that she was drug-seeking because the only thing that alleviated her pain was pain meds. Those same doctors were turned down her, her pain pump when her pain was a 9 out of 10 scale. They refused to administer antibiotics she desperately needed, and they blocked transfers to hospitals who had specialists who could help her. All we had could do was pray over and over for God to open the doors on where we were supposed to go for help. Little whispers of the end would creep into my mind, and I prayed them away, thinking the enemy was trying to keep me bound in fear. In July, God swung doors open for us to go to Texas and Indiana. We fundraised hard. Our community came together, and off we went. The doctor in Texas told her that she was not too skinny. She was Hollywood skinny. Yet, meanwhile, her body continued to not accept food, and she continued to lose weight. The second daughter, doctor told her that the machine was the miracle that she needed. Yet, every time the machine touched her body, she screamed like we were torturing her in pain. We flew to Indiana, and by God's mercy, they found an infection in her intestines before we went into a procedure. Had they not found that infection, the second that they took her into the procedure, she would have immediately died. Kayla became too complicated and complex under the admission, and so they airlifted her from Riley Children's Hospital back to her home hospital in, in Southern California. We had never been so happy to land in Long Beach as we did on August 18th. There was a sense of hope we had not had for months. Again, that very quiet whisper of the end of her life approaching became more frequent and louder. Kayla took a turn for the worst, and eventually the, doc the doctors stopped coming in with good news. 
Kayla, under her weak and frail 86-pound body with everything she had, managed to mutter, fix me. Unfortunately, that never happened. On September 10th, 2017, at 5.48 a.m., Kayla took her last breath on this earth. As I held her and took in every piece of her, the smell of her hair, the way her body felt, the, the way it felt to hold her hand, my world became completely colorless. I walked out of that hospital that had carried so many answers for so long, empty, lost, and without her. I realized nothing, nothing mattered more than her relationship with Christ because nothing crossed over with her other than that. Kayla had a deep-seated faith. She loved Jesus with all of her heart and had a deep conviction for the broken world that she lived in. She was full of sass and light and also love and empathy. She was witty but could not make a funny face for the life of her. Kayla was different than many other teens we know. She prayed by name for people, people's salvation. She knew the importance of the relationship. As I walked out of the hospital, shattered and not knowing how to breathe, I had nothing in me to turn to the one who had took her from us. He could have saved her. He could have granted her the greatest miracle she had ever had and used it as his testimony, yet he chose not to. And then still ahead of us, we had to tell our little girls their sissy had died. All the people who loved her and how hurt they were because she passed, knowing there was nothing I could do, especially, especially for the teens that had become like ours. It crushed me. I had no idea what to do with myself. I had no idea where to turn. I always had Jesus, yet where was he? He took our little girl. Where was he? The night she passed away, Spence and I were laying in bed, broken, shattered, and in the deepest pain of our lives. And Spence accepted Jesus into his heart. A few months later, the fire of salvation continued to burn. Doctors, nurses, friends came to Jesus because of the life that Kayla had lived. Nine months after she was called to heaven, we went to Mount Hermon. It was a place that is sacred to our family, a place we had previously been and found peace with Kayla, and we visited as a family. Outside of her Make-A-Wish trip, Mount Hermon was the only place we had ever been on a vacation as a family. It's a place that is not just a location on a map, but a church family that has come alongside us, loved us, and carried us when we had no idea we needed to be carried. This was our first trip back to Mount Hermon without Kayla. My parents joined us. The girls, Spence and I, were so excited to have a breath of fresh air, to have Jesus fed into us for a week, and to reconnect as a family, and with Nana and Papa by our side to do it. As we were heading to the dining hall, my dad turns to me and says, so when is this religious stuff going to start? <laughs> the Holy Spirit quickly covered my mouth, <laughs> quickly covered my mouth and gently whispered, I'm working. I spent the week praying over and over for my dad. He was so angry after losing Kayla. Before the week ended, Spence was baptized by Pastor David and Pastor Dave Burns. They also baptized our middle daughter, Cadence. I think Cadence's heart was hardened just as hard as my dad's. Cadence had struggled for the past two years, wrestling with God for taking her sister and also causing all of this pain that we have that could have been saved had he saved her. 
That week, Caden found peace and asked to be baptized along Spence. At the same time, I noticed my dad sitting more relaxed in the sanctuary. He no longer sat there with this crossed arms and that dad face he has where he's somewhere he's being forced to be. What seemed like a short time longer, Nana and Papa were baptized at this church. I can remember our pastor telling us a few weeks after losing Kayla to grieve and hope, and I had no idea what that meant. I think I do now. As more and more people continue to come to Christ from the journey that we walked with Kayla and our walk after her passing, I'm starting to really get it. Losing Kayla will never be easy. We will forever miss her. What I know is Jesus is the hope that we all need. He offers supernatural peace that cannot be explained. He is the redemptive story in all of this. He's the only reason I'm still standing here today. We lost Kayla, but through losing her, we have gained so many people that we love and care about and that she prayed by name. And we will get to spend eternity with them, not just the short 15 years we had while Kayla was here. I thought I knew Jesus before she passed, and I was so wrong. The truth is God was not who I thought he was. God is who he says he is. And for that, I'm grateful. He fights for every single one of us. No matter what your sins are or the path you've chosen, he fights for you. And I know this because he fought for me too, and I've made a lot of mistakes. He's a good father. He never turned his back. Please remember this. God loves us so much, he never forces us to love him. He never forces us in his presence. He never makes us obey his ways. And in the same breath, if we choose to deny him here and not want to be with him, he's not going to force us to be with him in eternity either. You'll get to still be separated from him. I believe with every piece of me that our only calling as a parent is to feed into our children and to ensure their salvation. Because when they die, and I pray that you will not be here to see that, but when they die, the only thing that matters is what they knew of Jesus and the relationship they had of him. The iPhones, their sports accomplishments, what university they go to, none of that matters. Just the relationship with Christ. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story that you've written and continue to write through Didi and this family. And I'm so grateful that even as hard as it must have been, she kept letting you write it and not take the pen from your hand. Because you know, the story that you write is the best story. And I thank you that this story will be read and heard about throughout the earth. Because that's how you restore broken things. By bringing us into a relationship with you through the testimony and through the word of Christ. And I pray right now, if there's anyone here today that wants to receive God's love and compassion through receiving Jesus Christ as Son, that they would open their hearts and they'd pray in their heart and they'd say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I want to be restored. I want to be made new. I ask you to give me your spirit, your Holy Spirit, to live inside of me, which is the spirit of Christ. And now I can have a relationship restored with my Father. And I can talk to him all day and all night. And you care about every part of our life. 
even the broken parts, more the broken parts. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com. Amen.